Good morning, everyone. My name's Julene, and I'll be reading 2 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 24, to chapter 18, verses 18. David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of Jethah, an Ishmaelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash and sister of Zeariah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makkeh, son of Amiel from Lodebar, and Basili, the Gileadite from Rojalim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, The people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeariah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, You must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, Protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. 
Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Jono, um, and I'm the, uh, the senior pastor of uh, the, our sister congregation, Harrington Park, and uh, the, the, the uh, senior minister of our parish of, um, of Camden Valley. And it's uh, great to be with you this morning and to, uh, to open God's Word together. Uh, great to be with you on this special occasion uh, for Jeremy and, and Jen and for Audrey and, and Darcy. And uh, if you're visiting today, I'd like to extend my welcome to you. Uh, let's uh, pray again as we come to reflect on this part of God's Word as we continue our series. We've been working through 2 Samuel and uh, let's pray as we, as we continue that. Father God, we do thank you for your Word and we ask that you give us insight and understanding. We ask that you'd give us ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts ready to respond to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you had to choose one or the other, which would you choose? Love or justice? Perhaps it would, might depend on, uh, on whether we're on the, the receiving end of the love or, or of the justice. Maybe if we're in the wrong, maybe we'd prefer to receive some, some love, some kindness, uh, rather than just condemnation. Uh, on the other hand, if we've been wronged, maybe we're more interested in uh, justice being upheld and we're not so much concerned with pursuing love and kindness. I think we often see these two poles in the world around us, uh, in the media, in popular culture. Uh, on the one hand, we're, we're called to respond to some people with, uh, with love and acceptance and compassion. And on the other, where the only right response is supposedly to just just condemnation to others. And so is it, is it love or is it justice? Uh, maybe on a, on a personal front, we, we can uh, feel this, this tension between these two with those who are close to us. Perhaps a spouse, uh, with children, with parents, siblings, close friends. For example, those who are parents. What do you do when your child does the wrong thing? I mean, this, this happens, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a parent of four children. Um, do we pursue justice? Or do you show love and mercy and grace? Or, or, or do you try to do both? And how do you do that? Do you swing from kind of one to the other? Can love and justice both somehow be achieved? And if so, how? We see this tension at work in our lives. And, and we see it at work in this passage before us today as we continue to trace the, the mess in David's in King David's house through the second half of 2 Samuel. He, um, his son, Absalom, has launched a full-scale rebellion against his father. 
He's attempting to become king in, in his place. And, and David's response to his son carries this same messy tension between love and justice. And as we read this, we, we feel this tension, we're, we're, we're drawn into it, but I hope also we're, we're drawn to look forward, to, to be pointed beyond that, to God's ultimate solution to that tension, a, a solution, an answer that, that impacts and shapes our lives as we wrestle with this. So look with me at this, uh, this part of uh, 2 Samuel. Um, uh, this is setting context, uh, if you haven't been uh, here following along uh, or to remind us uh, where we're up to, we saw last week David's escape from the threat of Absalom, uh, largely thanks to the shrewd advice of Hushai, who, who played to Absalom's ego and, and managed to, to delay his attack on David sufficiently such that uh, David and his men had enough time to escape. Uh, and that's where we pick things up today as we prepare for battle. So verse 24... David went to Mahanaim. Uh, Mahanaim is, uh, was a town uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. The name literally means two camps, which is quite fitting because here we have the people of Israel divided into, into two camps. Uh, firstly, there's Absalom with, it says, uh, all the men of Israel. It sounds like the advice of Hushai uh, had been taken. I mean, here are, here are all the men of Israel being led out by Absalom into battle against David and his men. Uh, Absalom's in charge and he appoints, we're told, a new commander of his army in place of Joab. So Joab had, had been the, was the commander of David's army and he'd remained loyal to David and so Absalom appoints a new commander in his place, uh, Amasa or Amasa. And then we're given this, uh, these details about the family tree, tree of Amasa, um, names which Julian uh, read spectacularly well for us, um, better than I'm going to, but uh, let me try and give you a bit of this, sort of piece this together for us. Um, so Am- uh, Absalom's new commander was Amasa, who was the son of Jetha, uh, an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, uh, and also the, uh, Abigail was the sister of Zeruiah, who was the mother of Joab. Okay, got that makes sense, which means Amasa and Joab are cousins, that's right. Sorry, maybe my, my diagram's not uh, particularly clear. Um, the most significant thing about that is that Zeruiah was also the sister of David. Perhaps a half-sister, uh, we know David's father was Jesse, so we've got two fathers here, but there's a sister, half-sister relationship between David and Zeruiah, which, all of which means that Amasa was the nephew of David. Significance of that relationship will be seen in the coming weeks. With that family tree clarified, I hope, um, the scene is set, verse 26, the Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. So here's the first of the two camps. Here are the, the people of Israel in rebellion against God's anointed king, camped with their rebel leader Absalom in the land of Gilead along the edge of the Jordan River. The other of the two camps is David and his men at Mahanaim. Uh, Verse 27 tells us that uh, when David arrived in Mahanaim, he was met by three men, uh, Shobi, Machir and Barzillai, uh, men who have interesting names and uh, make up an interesting collection of supporters 
of David, and we're told with great detail the support that they provided to David and his men. They, verse 28, brought uh, bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grains, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. The writer of 2 Samuel includes this, this detail of this abundant blessing for the exhausted, hungry, thirsty people of God in the wilderness. The Lord is providing abundantly for his needy people in the wilderness, as he did back in the days of Moses. Then having been refreshed, chapter 18 continues, David then gathers his his men, he organises them into three divisions, under three leaders, under Joab, his brother Abishai, and uh, and Ittai the Hittite, who uh, Ben suggested might uh, have been affectionately known as It the Git. David, he gathers his men, he divides them, he puts them under leaders. He intends to go into battle with them, but they persuade him not to. They, say, they persuade him to stay in the city. Now, this wasn't unusual. Sometimes David uh, went with the army into battle, sometimes he didn't. Uh, for example, 2 Samuel 10, we have two battles. One was led by uh, Joab and Abishai, the other was led by David. But on this occasion, the wisdom of the men was for David to remain in the city to not go into battle, since he is the particular target of Absalom. David, as the rightful king, is far too valuable to endanger, they say. He's he's, uh, worth 10,000 of them. Uh, Their advice seems in line with the good advice. We've had uh, the previous chapter of Ahithophel uh, given to Absalom to just target David, take him out. Uh, But unlike Absalom, David accepts this advice. He stays out of the battle. And so verse 4, we have the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. Hundreds and thousands. It makes me think of fairy bread, but no, don't think of fairy bread. Um, He stood by the gate as they marched out. And as they left, he gave his commanders their marching orders in full hearing of the troops. And here the tension between justice and love is... Is introduced. I mean, what, what's David going to say to his loyal troops as they valiantly go out into battle on his behalf? I mean, we might expect a, an inspiring speech, calling them to arms and to battle, and perhaps something like the, this video clip from the Lord of the Rings. Or 
boring stuff, isn't it? You want to watch the rest of the movie now, isn't it? Is that David, you know, there before his men as they head out into battle? We might expect something like that as Aragorn calls his, his men to fight, to uphold justice, to bring down the powers of evil. We might expect that of David as his loyal troops head off into battle on his behalf. Instead, we get this, verse 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Be gentle with the young man Absalom. The, the, the rebel who has white-anted the kingdom, who wants to kill David and make himself king, be gentle with him. It, it, it kind of doesn't seem to fit, does it? But then again, on the other hand, Absalom is David's son. And despite all that he's done, I mean, David loves Absalom and he's clinging to his love for him. Please be, please be gentle with him as they go into war against him. It's somewhat jarring. Well, nonetheless, verse 6 says... David's army, oh sorry, we had that. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And then we're firstly given the summary of the battle, verse 7. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great. Twenty thousand men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. There's the summary. Despite the odds, David's men were victorious. Now, as readers of 2 Samuel, we're, we're not surprised. I mean, this is, this is the outworking of, of what we were told last week in, in, uh, in chapter 17, verse 14, that key verse that says, For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. The Lord is bringing justice to this one who has defied the anointed king. Notice there that the hand of the Lord... Uh, in, the, in the comment that the, the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Um, that truly was the battle of the forest. Juvenile Jono kind of thinks at this point of the, you know, the, um, the dreaded fire swamp from the Princess Bride movie, you know, the, the forest devoured up more men than the sword, you know, with the, uh, what was it, the flame spurts, the uh, uh, lightning sand and the rodents of unusual size. Um, the, the forest devoured more men than the sword. It was obviously a hazardous place to be. Um, but perhaps this again is showing the hand of God's judgment at work as he determined to bring Absalom Absalom to justice, even though, even through the means of a dangerous forest, which as it turns out is actually what happened. So after the summary, verse 8, paraphrase, David's men were victorious. We then zoom in to the, the key event that we're interested in, what, what happens to Absalom. We see the, the, the downfall, or perhaps I should say the uplift of Absalom. Thank you, that was the joke. Um, we're given quite a lot of detail about this. Verse, uh, verse 9 says, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Notice here Absalom's continued uh, ego and, and pretense. I mean, he's, he's riding his mule, which uh, it would seem it was a, a royal mode of transport. He rides under the, the thick branches of this 
large oak and maybe he's looking behind him as, as he flees from David and his, David's men. Um, the NIV translation says his hair got caught in the tree. Literally, it says his, his head got caught, given the, the immensity of his voluminous hair that we heard about a few chapters. We can see why translators might have suggested his hair that got caught. Maybe his, his head got caught between some branches, in, forked branches in the tree. Whatever the case, he's left hanging in midair, literally hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule he was riding kept on going. What will become of him as he hangs between heaven and and earth. We read verse 10, when one of the men saw, uh, when one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man, what, who had told him this, what, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I'd have to give you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. Joab can't believe that this man didn't just kill Absalom on the spot and become a, a war hero. The man defends himself in verse 12. Verse 12, but the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. The man clearly understood David's intent to be gentle with the man Absalom. This man wasn't going to, he wasn't going to risk the king's wrath against him by putting the king's son to death. And, and as he continues, verse 13, um, and if I had put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. He knew Joab wouldn't stick up for him if he got on the wrong side of the king. Joab then, true to form, man of action, doesn't have time for this says verse 14 I'm not going to wait like this for you so he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree and 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom struck him and killed him Joab isn't interested in being gentle with Absalom he's not interested in the response of love he's all for justice for this traitorous rebel Perhaps the point of having 10 men striking and killing Absalom, maybe it was to conceal which of them actually dealt the, the death blow. At, at any rate, I think we've got to say it's about the, the, the furthest thing from, that you can get from David's command to be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Well then with Absalom dead, Joab halted the, the pursuit of Israel. They buried Absalom in a hasty grave marked with a large heap of stones which stood as a reminder of the sorry end that comes to rebels like Absalom. And like that pile of, of rocks, the, the section ends with uh, telling of another symbol of the demise of Absalom. Verse 18 says, During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the King's Valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Despite his selfish ambition, his, his rebellion against the Lord's anointed, Absalom didn't become king. And he had no lasting legacy other than a pillar that he erected for himself and a large heap of rocks over his grave. It's a pitiful end. Have to wait till next week to find out David's response to Absalom's downfall. Or if you can't wait till then, you can read on later. But what we see today is this 
this tension between love and, and justice. I mean, surely justice is what Absalom deserved. And yet David seems unable to, to pursue it. He, he clings to love for his son, even as he sends his men into battle against him. And, and I think we're meant to feel the unsatisfactory, unresolved tension between love and justice at this point. I mean, is it right for Absalom to meet justice? Yes. Is it right for David to love his son? Yes. How can both love and justice be achieved? David's a real mixed character, isn't he? I mean, we've seen that throughout these, these chapters. 2 Samuel shows us this mix. I mean, he's, we see the depravity of his sin, his adultery, his murder. And we see the sincerity of his repentance when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. We see his, his grief at the mistreatment of his daughter Tamar, his grief at, at the slaughter of his son Amnon, but also his lack of action to, to uphold justice. We see his shrewdness to, to act wisely in response to the threat of Absalom, but also his reluctance to deal justly with the murderous intent of his son. David is this, this mixed character. He's a flawed character. And yet the Lord chose him. And the Lord continued to work through him to faithfully bring about his plans. Plans to, to ultimately bring together perfect love and perfect justice through, through another king, one descended from David who, unlike David, had no flaw, one who perfectly upheld both love and justice. Ultimately, love and justice can only fully meet at the cross of King Jesus, where justice is, is upheld as God deals with our sin against him by taking its punishment upon himself. And yet, this is also the ultimate expression of love as the sinless Son of God died for us to bring us forgiveness and freedom and restoration and relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. It's through David's greater Son, Jesus, that perfect love and perfect justice meet. And that transforms our relationship with God, if we, if we put our trust in Jesus, which I take it is, is probably most of us here this morning. That, that we've, we've done that. We've put our trust in, in King Jesus. It might be that some of you haven't. I don't know each and everyone's heart. And I want to say, if, if you haven't, I want to urge you to, to look to Jesus, to find perfect love and perfect justice. Acknowledge King Jesus. Put your trust in him while you can. Don't continue in your rebellion against him. The love and, and justice found in Jesus, that, that transforms our relationship to God. But what about our relationships with one another? This side of heaven, we don't see this, this perfect coming together of love and justice in, in our relationships. We live in a fallen world. Part of the fallenness of this world can mean that we, we cling to love over and against justice at times perhaps like David, or we cling to justice over and against love, perhaps like the bloodthirsty Joab. And I mean, just these past few weeks as I've reflected on this, this passage in my own life, I've seen this, this tension between love and justice. I've seen my own heart, my responses to others swing from, from harsh condemnation. I mean, I haven't wanted to put three javelins through anyone, but be pleased to know. But, but I do find myself jumping quickly to, 
a position of judgment and wanting to see consequences dished out and but then swing through to a desire to just be passive and let things be perhaps under the guise of love and I suspect I'm not alone in this in this struggle this tension and it's messy it's messy because unlike Jesus none of us are perfect and we don't see things perfectly but the good news of the gospel is that there is that there is peace with God and that that peace with God through Jesus can and does overflow into our relationships with one another. As we repent of our sin against God, so that leads us to repent of our sin against others. As we are forgiven by God and find in him our true identity, our grounding, well, that enables us, that frees us to be able to, to offer forgiveness to others who've wronged us. That doesn't mean an an abandoning of justice. There'll still be consequences for sin in in this world. But it does mean there can be great hope for our relationships. Because restoration with God can bring restoration with one another. And the the love and justice that's found in heaven can overflow into our relationships here on earth. And so as we look at this this part of 2 Samuel with, this, with the death of Absalom. I just want to encourage you as we experience that, that tension in our lives, uh, perhaps as we swing from between those poles of love and justice, I want to encourage you to, to look to God's King, David's greatest son, and to see the, the perfect love, the perfect justice that's found in him and to allow that reality to overflow into our lives in how we respond and relate to one another. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come. It's a great prayer. It's a prayer, it's a prayer that, of, for the coming of perfect love and perfect justice here on earth as it is in heaven. What a great thing to pray and what a great thing to seek to live out. Will you join me as we pray now? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for King Jesus, for David's greater son, in whom is found perfect love and perfect justice. Our Father, we ask that you'd forgive us our sin against you and against one another. And please strengthen us to look to Jesus. May his love and justice seen on the cross, may that shape our lives and our relationships to your glory. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.